One of the things that is extremely difficult for people to accept, especially many Christians, is the fact that there are people who are very religious and devout, but are considered by God to be worthy of damnation. Even making this statement sounds like a contradiction. How is it possible for someone to be very religious and devout, but be considered by God worthy of damnation? The reason why it is difficult for us to accept that reality is twofold. Number one, we find it difficult to believe that not all religion or even religion under the umbrella of Christendom is pleasing to God. And number two, we find it difficult to believe that some people would be willing to stoop so low as to use religion to make lots of money off of unsuspecting people. Yet, the fact of the matter is that both of those statements are true. Not all religion, or even religion under the umbrella of Christendom, is pleasing to God. And there are people who are willing to stoop so low as to use religion to make money, lots of money, off unsuspecting people. Scripture repeatedly warns us about both of those realities. Let's turn together to 2 Peter chapter 3 over near the end of the New Testament as we continue our way through this small but powerful letter written by the Apostle Peter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. We move this morning into the second chapter of 2 Peter. So please follow along as I read verses 1 through 3, though we'll only focus this morning on verse 1. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words, For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. These are strong words from the pen of Peter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. As you can see from reading these verses, Peter warns about the two things I mentioned just a moment ago. He warns his readers that not all religion or even religion under the umbrella of Christendom, is pleasing to God. And he warns that there are people who are willing to stoop so low as to use religion to make lots of money off of unsuspecting people. Beloved, it is a lie from the pit of hell that all religions lead to God. And it is just as inaccurate to believe that all religions under the umbrella of Christendom point people to the true path of salvation. The strongest words Jesus ever used were uttered not against harlots, not against drunkards, not against adulterers, but were uttered against religion 
and religious people. In fact, it is safe to say that Peter's words here in this chapter were based on what he heard Jesus himself say. Let me show you this back in Matthew chapter 23. Go from here back to the very first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 23, for a look at what is undoubtedly the background of 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter, following the example of his Lord, warned about religion and religious leaders. That's what we see here in Matthew 23. This chapter records Jesus' blistering denouncement of the religious leaders of his day. Jesus had two goals in mind when he uttered these words. Number one, he was warning his disciples and other people in society about copying or being misled by the example of these religious leaders. Remember now, as we read these words here in Matthew 23, remember the scribes and the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. They were seen by most people in society as the epitome of spirituality. We have this negative view of them because of what we have read about them in the Gospels and in passages like this, so we see them as obvious hypocrites. But the people of that day would have not had that perspective. The scribes and the Pharisees were their religious leaders. They had the positions, they had the dress, they had the look, they had the titles. So it is no wonder that there were many people in society who looked up to them and admired them and listened to them and were influenced by them. Beloved, I, I cannot begin to tell you how difficult it is for people in society, and especially in religion, to accept the fact that there are many, many religious leaders in Christendom who do not really have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. When they hold the positions and wear the religious garb and have the titles, it is so difficult for people to see past all that stuff to the reality or the absence of the reality. Therefore, Jesus gave this strong warning here in Matthew 23 so that the people of his day would not copy or be misled by the example of the religious leaders. After he described them in verses 4 through 7, Jesus basically said to his disciples, you should not be like them. Don't be like them and don't be misled by them. That's one of the reasons why Jesus gave this strong denunciation here in Matthew 23. But there was a second reason. A second reason why Jesus uttered these strong words is because it was, in essence, his final attempt to get through to these religious leaders before they ended up in hell with no possibility of repentance. Jesus knew that it would take severe and unsparing words to get through to these men, if anything could get through to them. Some people might call this unloving, but it is not unloving to be firm and straightforward and frank and candid with someone when you know that is the only possible way to save him or her from total destruction. That is why Jesus was so emphatic 
in his statements here in chapter 23. It is likely that these religious leaders were already beyond the point of no return. But even if there was just a slight chance of shaking them off their path of destruction, Jesus was going to hit the issue as hard as he could hit it. And let me tell you, he hit it hard. As you will see, just briefly, he hit it hard. These are earth-shattering statements made by our Lord. Several times in this chapter, Jesus utters the word woe. He does so in verse 13, verse 14, verse 15, verse 16, verse 23, verse 25, verse 27, and verse 29. These woes are the rolling thunder of our Lord's holy and righteous wrath. The word woe means judgment or damnation or horror or disaster or calamity. Here's another definition of the word, a longer one. How horrible it will be. How horrible it will be for people who have embraced religion over the truth of God's inspired word. I find it interesting to note that these are the last words Jesus spoke in public. Think about that. This is his final public discourse. Verse 1 says, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples. Luke 20, 45 words it a little differently by saying, Then, in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples. In other words, this was a public message Jesus gave, probably somewhere on the Temple Mount as he taught in the final week of his life. He spoke these words publicly in the open so everyone could hear them. Needless to say, the last words of anyone are significant. But the final public words of our Lord are extremely important. These are those very words. Having addressed the multitudes and the disciples, Jesus turned his focus to the religious leaders themselves. We pick it up in verse 13. He says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are, who are entering to go in. This is the first of, of the several woes uttered by our Lord in this chapter. As I mentioned a moment ago, the word means judgment, or damnation, or horror, or disaster, or calamity, or how horrible it will be. So you can read it that way. Judgment to you, scribes and Pharisees. Damnation to you, scribes and Pharisees. How horrible it will be for you, scribes and Pharisees. Beloved, this had to be shocking to hear. I don't, I don't think we can imagine it. It would be like Jesus going to the denominational Bible college or seminary today and saying, Damnation to you, teachers and professors. It would be like him going to a denominational church convention and saying, judgment to all of you pastors and reverends. 
It would be like him going to the Vatican in Rome and saying, Woe to you, popes and cardinals. How horrible it's going to be for you in the day of judgment. Jesus was saying these things. Imagine this. Jesus was saying these things about the recognized and respected religious leaders of the day. And not only did he warn them about the judgment that was coming their way, he also called them hypocrites. Now understand something. This was not an epithet or a derogatory name that Jesus was calling these men. In other words, he wasn't using the term as a slur. He wasn't calling them names. He was actually telling them what they were. They were hypocrites because they pretended to be religious leaders who lived for the glory of God, but they were really living for the praise of men. So people would pat them on the back, extol them, hold them up, compliment them. They were living for the praise of people and to have control over people. And boy, did they have control over people. Back in verse 4, Jesus said that they would bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. This is the way they worked. They would put unrealistic expectations upon people to burden them down and weigh them down, but they wouldn't help in any way. They weighed people down with guilt so they could take advantage of the people. That's a common control mechanism that many religions and religious leaders use. Guilt guilt manipulation is a powerful tool. And many religions know how to use it effectively. If you can get people feeling guilty, they will do just about anything to appease their guilt. And that is exactly the position many many religious leaders want people to be in so the people can be influenced and controlled to some extent, at least manipulated. The scribes and Pharisees were masters at this. They burdened people down with unrealistic obligations without any intention of helping the people in any way. They wanted to keep the people hoping that their endless cycle of works would be enough to get them a pass on Judgment Day. That's why Jesus added the last statement of this verse. He said, For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. This, This is the tragedy of all tragedies. The very leaders who were supposed to show people the way into the kingdom of heaven. How to be right with God and to help people into the kingdom of heaven actually prevented people from going in. Isn't that an amazing thought? The religious leaders actually hindered people from going into the kingdom of heaven. How? Why did Jesus say this? What is he talking about? What were the religious leaders doing? Here's what they were doing. They were substituting their own religious trappings in place of the Word of God. 
They had come up with their own rituals and their own requirements and their own liturgies to follow. They convinced the people that if they would just follow all of these religious ceremonies and all of these religious observances, they would make it into the kingdom of heaven. But it wasn't true. It just wasn't true. All of the religious ceremonies and observances and rituals and liturgies weren't going to guarantee the people a place in the kingdom of heaven because that's not what God said in his word. The religious leaders had no right, absolutely no right, to make their own substitutions, but that is exactly what they did. That's why they weren't going into the kingdom of heaven, and that's why they were preventing others from going in as well. Beloved, this is exactly what religion does. This is exactly what religion does. Even Christian religion. Christendom is filled with this kind of thing today. There are so many religious ceremonies and observances and rituals and liturgies and practices that people can't even see past all this man-made stuff to what God says in his word about salvation. And the sad part, the really sad part, is that so many people assume that if they just follow through with all the religious ceremonies, and if they follow through with all of these observances and the rituals and the liturgies, then they will make it into heaven. Do you know how many people this very day are going to go into supposed houses of worship to go and to jump through those hoops? The number is incalculable. It is tragic beyond description. And Jesus said, as Jesus said here about the religious leaders of his day, you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Nothing could be worth, worse than this, beloved, nothing. It's a terrible thing to mislead people about various matters in, in life. It's, terrible, it's a terrible thing to mislead people about products or money or services, or investments, or other kinds of choices in life, other kinds of decisions in life. It's terrible to do that to people, but none of that compares with misleading people regarding their eternal destiny. No wonder Jesus said, woe to you. No wonder he said, how horrible it will be for you. It's awful enough to miss the kingdom of heaven yourself. But when you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, and when you prevent others from going in, that is heinous beyond words. And that is why Jesus is so passionate in this rebuke. You cannot read Matthew 23 without seeing his emotion. You cannot read Matthew 23 without seeing his intensity, his passion. People's eternal destiny was at stake. And beloved, that is why I'm so passionate regarding the things I often say about religion within Christendom. You see, it is obvious to some people here in our culture that non-Christian religions are not going to lead you to heaven. Now, not all people in our society believe that, but there are many who do. 
they have enough awareness to say, you know, these non-Christian religions, they're leading people down the wrong path. However, listen to this. Many of those same people are completely blind to the fact that Christian religions and Christian denominations and Christian churches also shut up the kingdom of heaven. They do so with all of their religious ceremonies and all of their religious observances and rituals and liturgies that give people a false sense of security. People just check the box. I've done that one. I've done that one. I do that one. I do that one. People believe that if they just jump through those hoops, they're going to be fine. But nothing is said about repentance from sin. Nothing is said about a commitment to Christ or knowing Christ personally as Lord and Savior. It's tragic beyond description. There are churches, many churches, you can go to, you could attend, you could attend for weeks, you could attend for months and never hear a word said about the importance of you individually repenting of your sin, turning to Jesus Christ in childlike faith. It's tragic beyond description. That is why Jesus uses such strong words in this rebuke. He says in verse 14, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. By the way, this verse doesn't occur in all manuscripts of Matthew, and that is why the NIV, the ESV, and the NASB don't always include it, or they include it with some kind of footnote indicating that. However, it does, hear this, it does occur in Mark's account and Luke's account of this rebuke. So we know that Jesus said it. In fact, in Luke's abbreviated account, this is the only action of the religious leaders that Jesus even mentioned. It's the only one listed. They devoured widows' houses and for a pretense made long prayers. They made long prayers to convince people that they were really spiritual, really devout. And they used that facade to take advantage of widows financially. You say, well, that doesn't go on today. Don't you dare believe that. It is an established fact. Hear this. It is an established fact that the overwhelming majority of the money gained by prosperity gospel preachers comes from widows. The facts bear that out. The the surveys, the studies, that's where the majority of their money comes from. Those hypocritical religious leaders take advantage of widows to build their massive fortunes composed of yachts, airplanes, and multi-million dollar houses scattered around the country and scattered around the world. They devour widows' houses. And Jesus says, woe to you. Damnation to you. Judgment to you. How horrible it's going to be for you in the day of judgment. And then he says in verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. 
This is, this is how they worked. They were aggressive in their efforts to win people to their cause and to convince people that their religion was the way to go. And when they won their converts, they sealed them an eternity in hell, Jesus said. By the way, Jesus had no hesitation whatsoever to talk about the reality of hell. The word Jesus uses here in this verse is the Greek word Gehenna. It's a combination of two words that refer to the valley of Hinnom just south of the city of Jerusalem. In Hebrew, Gai. Gai is valley. Hinnom is the valley of Hinnom. So it's Gai, Hinnom. That comes from Hebrew, Gai, Hinnom, into Greek, Gehenna. And it is the word translated hell in the New Testament. That valley, the valley of Hinnom, was used as the garbage dump for the city of Jerusalem. All the trash was thrown there, and it was burned. The fires were kept burning all the time. And because of all the trash, understandably, naturally, there were worms all around the trash and all around the fire. And that's why you hear Jesus describing hell as a place where the fires never stop burning and the worms are gathered. That's the picture Jesus used of hell. And he talked about it on a regular basis. Jesus made it clear that such is the destiny of false religious leaders and all their followers. But let me remind you of something, beloved. And please hear this. False religious leaders don't wear a sign that says they are false religious leaders. They claim to be true religious leaders. They claim to be representatives of God. They claim to be representatives of Christ. And they may even think in their own minds that they are. They may convince themselves that they are. They call themselves Christians. They have the positions, and they have the titles, and they have the look, and they wear the religious garb. They use religious terminology, and they are respected by many, revered by many, looked up to by many. But that doesn't make them real. It doesn't make them genuine. They, pro they promote their religious ceremonies and their observances and their rituals and their liturgies. But nothing is said about repentance from sin. Nothing is said about a personal commitment to Christ. Nothing is said about knowing Jesus as your own Lord and Savior. The Word of God is lost in all of their religiosity. The sad reality is that they will end up in hell. And maybe even sadder so will all their followers. These words from our Lord Jesus riveted themselves into Peter's heart and mind. They burned, th these words were burned into Peter's soul, as it were. So when he wrote his second letter, he gave a similar warning to his readers. Let's go back to 2 Peter chapter 2 as we begin to consider it this morning. This entire second chapter of 2 Peter is devoted to this warning. Just like Matthew 23 and just about all of its entirety is devoted to, to a warning, 2 Peter 2 is devoted to warning against false religious leaders. Notice how it begins. Verse 1, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, 
who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. Just as Jesus did in Matthew 23, Peter also gives a stern warning here in chapter 2. He begins the chapter with the word but because he is making a contrast. He is contrasting the true prophets he just talked about at the end of chapter 1. He's contrasting those true apostles and prophets and the false teachers he describes here in chapter 2. His first point, the very first point he makes here in this verse, is that there have always been false prophets and false teachers around God's people. Always. This goes all the way back into Hebrew Scripture, all down through history. This has always been the case. Jesus taught in Matthew 23, that's, or in Matthew 13, that Satan loves to plant tares among the wheat. That's what he does. Satan loves to place false prophets and false teachers in churches and in denominations and in Bible schools and in seminaries. Satan loves to do that. And he especially loves it if those false teachers can get into key positions of leadership. That way they can have maximum influence. If false teachers who don't hold to the inspiration and authority of Scripture can get to be pastors or professors in theological institutions or presidents of such organizations, the results are devastating. Just look at what has happened to Christianity in Europe. Theological liberalism led by men and women who don't hold to Scripture has for all intents and purposes destroyed the church in Europe. Destroyed it. If you don't believe me, just travel around Europe and try to find churches that preach Scripture clearly, accurately, authoritatively, such churches are few and very far between. I'm not saying there aren't any, but you have to look long and hard in Europe to find a church that preaches Scripture clearly, accurately, and authoritatively. And our country is following in those same footsteps. It is not an overstatement. It is by no means an overstatement to say that most teachers in Bible colleges and seminaries in our nation, if you take Every Bible college in the United States, every seminary, and you just add up all the numbers of faculty, it's not an overstatement to say that most teachers in those institutions do not hold to the inspiration, inerrancy, authority, and sufficiency of Scripture. And that destruction is passed along to the students in those schools who pass it along in their churches when they get out and in their ministries when they get out. It might surprise you to hear this because a lot of conservative evangelical Christians aren't aware of what's out there on the Christian landscape. They just don't know. But that is the majority view under the umbrella of Christianity. It's the majority view within Christendom. And when a church or a school or a denomination is willing to let go of the foundational doctrine of inspiration and inerrancy, many other doctrines just end up falling by the wayside. It's one after the other. They're let go of, they're dismissed, they're written off. That's why there are so many people in Christendom 
I'm not talking about out in the world. I'm not talking about in secular society. That's why there are so many people in Christendom who don't believe in a literal hell. They don't believe in a literal devil. They don't believe in an ark and a worldwide flood. They don't believe in Jonah and the huge fish. They don't believe in a six-day creation. They don't believe in the virgin birth. They don't believe in the necessity of the new birth. And there are many other doctrines you could add to that list. Peter knew exactly what he was talking about. So we would be wise to take Peter's warning seriously. There have always been false teachers in the realm of religion. And beloved, it's going to be that way until Jesus comes back. And Peter says here in the middle of this verse that these false teachers bring in destructive heresies. As I was just saying, when you begin to deny certain foundational doctrines... When you're willing to let go of them or move away from them, it often results in a massive amount of spiritual destruction. In fact, sometimes the result is eternal destruction. False teachers who convince people that there is no hell or no future judgment or there are no absolutes or there is no one way to God pave the way for people to follow the broad road to destruction. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 7, 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. It's interesting to note that Jesus said that right after he had said, Wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Think about that. Right after Jesus commanded people to enter the narrow gate, He issued a warning that there are a host of religious leaders out there who lead people down the wrong road. It was his way of saying, don't be confused by them. Don't be misled by them. That's one of the reasons why there are so many people on the broad road to destruction. They listen to religious leaders who they assume they can trust, right? I mean, why would you not assume that? These are supposedly men of God, religious leaders. They listen to religious leaders who have brought in destructive heresies, to use Peter's phrase here in this verse. And Peter's next phrase is this, even denying the Lord who bought them. The Greek word for Lord or Master in this verse refers to the supreme authority who is in charge. And this phrase, beloved, this phrase tells us the root cause of these false teachers' destruction. This is the root. It is a denial of the lordship of Jesus Christ in their lives. They refuse to submit their lives to the rule of Christ. You know why? They want to be their own boss. Oh, yes, they want religion, but they want to be their own boss. They want their own intellect to be supreme, which means if something doesn't fit their concept of what is intellectually Feasible, they'll throw it out of Scripture. They'll dismiss it. They'll explain it away. They want their own intellect to be supreme, which is why they are willing to claim that we don't need to see all of the Bible's teaching as God's authoritative word, not the parts that are myths, not the silly parts, not the parts that are unscientific, just some parts of it are God's word, so they say. They want to maintain their religiosity 
But in practice, Peter says they deny the very Lord who bought them. Even though Jesus bought them to bring them into a relationship of submission to him, they refused to submit their lives to his lordship as expressed through his written word. Now, of course, they don't admit that they are unwilling to submit to him. They would never admit that. It's just that they get around it. They get around it by their religious explanations that basically explain away what the Word of God has to say. Oh, we know we don't have to take this seriously today. We're, we're far more educated. We don't have to believe everything in here. What is the result of that refusal to unconditionally submit to the Lordship of Christ? Peter tells us in the final phrase of this verse, he says, They bring on themselves swift destruction. This is the second time in one verse that Peter has used the word destruction. False teachers promote destructive doctrines, and the result will be that they will themselves be destroyed eternally. It may not seem like it is swift, because our Lord is amazingly patient and long-suffering, but when their destruction comes, it will be swift and sudden. And when Peter uses the word destruction in this verse, he's not talking about annihilation. He's talking about eternal hell, just as we saw earlier in the words of Jesus. That is the destiny of such religious leaders. They will be destroyed eternally in hell. Beloved, religion, religion that talks about God and talks about Jesus and talks about the Bible but doesn't submit to the lordship of Christ and his word unconditionally is a serious and grievous thing to our Lord. Religious leaders who talk about God and talk about Jesus and talk about the Bible but do not submit to the lordship of Christ and his word unconditionally are a grievous thing to our Lord. Their teaching is destructive and their end is destruction. So Peter says, don't be confused. Don't be deceived. Our Lord warned us about this very thing. And Peter, following in his steps, gives the same warning. We would be wise to take seriously their warning. Let's bow together as we close. And as you bow your head and close your eyes, thinking about what you have seen in God's Word this morning and heard from God's Word. A starting point for our wrap-up is just to emphasize again that if you don't know Jesus Christ personally as your own Lord and Savior, if you have never turned to Him, if you have never repented of your sin, let, let go of whatever would hold you back and turn personally to Christ in faith, you're not a child of God. Doesn't matter how religious you are, doesn't matter what church you were born in or denomination you were born in or how, how many religious rituals you have gone through, doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. If you have never personally turned to Jesus Christ in faith, humbled yourself before him, and received him as your Lord and Savior, you're not a child of God. Don't trust in religion. Turn to Jesus Christ by faith genuinely. Receive him 
as your own Lord and Savior. And if you are a child of God, then take seriously the warnings of Jesus and the apostles. Well, I know it's not popular in our day. It's not politically correct. It's not easy. But these warnings are serious because the implications, the ramifications are serious. People's eternal destiny is at stake. And so this is serious. And we as God's people need to take seriously the warnings in Scripture about false teachers, lest we be deceived and confused, and lest others around us be deceived and confused. Father, you are so gracious to us to have left these warnings, because we wouldn't see this on our own. It's just so easy to assume that people who, who claim to be religious leaders and are religious leaders, it's just easy to assume they would point us to the truth. But sadly, such is not the case. It's always been this way. Always. All the way back in Hebrew Scripture, on up into the New Testament times, and all the way down to our day and age. So open our eyes to help us see clearly so that we're not confused, we're not deceived, and work in our hearts a unreserved commitment to your word and what it says. Not to religion, not to religious dogma, but to your word and what it says. May we hold to it unceasingly, unflinchingly, until Jesus comes back. This is our prayer together in his precious and exalted name. Amen.